Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm your host, Lori Barkman, CEO of Small.Big. As a strategic growth and M&A advisor, I like to call myself a business transition Sherpa. My mission is guiding entrepreneurs on ways to build value in your business and then to benefit by letting it go. On this show, we spotlight the theme of transitions, not only to reward you for your hard work, but also to ensure that you look back on your succession without regret. For more succession stories, be sure to subscribe and follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube. Here's to your success. I'm excited to share the What's Next series as part of Succession Stories. These conversations spotlight the theme of transitions. Changes can come at you unexpectedly or be planned. Are you ready? After all, in business and life, succession is about transitions and how you embrace what's next matters. This conversation is about entrepreneurial freedom and deal-making. My guest, Corey Kupfer, is an expert strategist, deal-maker, and business consultant with more than 35 years of professional negotiating experience as an entrepreneur and an attorney. We talked about how entrepreneurial freedom creates value for a company, and we explored M&A tips for buy-side and sell-side deals. Listen in to hear Corey's insights for making winning deals. Corey Kupfer, thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories today. It was really great to meet you on your podcast. I was a guest on DealQuest a couple of months ago, and we got connected through other podcast friends, and I guess there's kind of this network of us, and we had a great conversation, obviously, on my show we're going to talk about you, <laughs> but if anyone wants to catch my episode on, on your podcast, obviously, I encourage them to do that. But I wanted to first welcome you and just a brief background for the audience so they know a little bit about you. What I find really interesting about very skilled people like yourself, the last thing I'll say is really for many people, the first thing they would say. So that's a little preview, but you're an expert strategist, deal maker, business consultant, and you have more than 35 years of experience as an entrepreneur and negotiator. And then the last thing you usually mention about yourself, at least on your website anyway, is that you're an attorney. <laughs> and I just thought that was really cool because you really emphasize the business side of your experience. So Corey, welcome. It's great to be here, Lori. I'm really looking forward to our talk. Thank you. Well, why don't we start with your background? Where'd you grow up? And just tell us a little bit about yourself when you were younger. Sure. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, to uh, lower middle class parents. We, we weren't poor. We always had food on the table, but it was sort of paycheck to paycheck, you know, kind of thing. And if you ask my mother, she would tell you that she knew I'd be a lawyer since I, was, since I could talk because I was always negotiating and advocating and, uh, you know, convincing. Yeah, so I grew up in Brooklyn. I actually went to a high school that had a special program on law, politics, and community affairs in Brooklyn, which was pretty cool. And I got into that, and that sort of triggered my interest in, in becoming a lawyer, although, of course, I didn't really know what that meant you know, at that time. But I went into college thinking that I wanted to go to law school, which is pretty unusual for you know, a kid to sort of have that idea, and that's, and that's what I ended up doing. And then, of course, you know, things evolved in very different ways than maybe I thought would be, but uh, at least... I had that, uh, that vision that I was going to be a lawyer for a number of years. 
So this negotiating that you were doing as a teenager, as a kid, was that with siblings to get more of their candy or with your parents <laughs> about staying up later or what kind of things were they? Yeah, well, I mean, so I only had, I have a younger sibling who's, you know, five, six years younger. So I didn't have to use a lot of negotiation on him because force worked. Uh, you know, <laughs> fear, fear factor. <laughs> until, until, of course, I grew out of that, uh, that phase. But, but yeah, I was definitely with, definitely with my parents. I mean, yeah, sure. Negotiating to stay up later, negotiating to get what I, you know, whatever I want, you know, especially because money was somewhat limited, you know, my mom tells a story on how I convinced her somehow to come in and, uh, you know, it was during the holidays, I have um, Jewish descent, you know, they were mothers coming in during Easter and Passover to cook. And I, I convinced her to cook potato lockers for the class and somehow didn't fail to mention that she was going to be the only, she got the impression there were going to be other mothers doing it. And somehow I failed to mention that. So she likes telling that story on how I convinced her. <laughs> you convinced her. Doing that. <laughs> My whole approach to negotiating, I was authentic negotiating. That's what my book is on. I, I, I was probably in the third grade a little less authentic than I probably should have been. <laughs> <laughs> if you could only rewind. So <laughs> exactly. let's talk about the entrepreneurship gene. How did you yeah. decide on that course of business and doing your own thing and setting up your own shingle as an attorney, as opposed yeah. to joining a larger firm? Well, so so what's really interesting, and it goes back to way before me being an attorney and you know, it's interesting to use the word gene because both of my parents worked with somebody their entire lives. So I didn't have that model in any way. So it's hard for me to understand where, where it came from because I didn't, have, I didn't have a lot of models for it in my family. But for somehow, when I was 15, I ran, I ran a business with, let's call them contractors. I wasn't withholding taxes on their pay. But, you know, I used to deliver flyers door to door in Brooklyn, you know, like supermarket circulars and whatever, you know, print stuff that you would go and like stick in people's screen doors. And get paid by a company, you know, to do that. I got hired. I was like, started at 14, I think. And, you know, get paid a penny a piece to deliver these things. And I started stopping in stores on the route and telling the store owners, hey, you know, we deliver flyers if you need it. And I got my own accounts and I hired my friends. And, you know, the model, the business model of that, of that business was that you'd have an older kid who would drive and drop off the younger kids and then check up to make sure that they were actually delivering the flyers as opposed to put them in the garbage or the sewer. But I didn't drive at that time. So I, I rode around on my bike and checked up on my crew. And, you know, in 19, I'm going to date myself now, but in 1976 at 15 years old, I was making 300 bucks a week running this flyer business, which was a ridiculous amount of money for <laughs> yeah. anybody at that guy. I'm certainly a low middle-class kid. And I did that for two years and then, you know, went away to college and just sort of give up, give up the business. I didn't, I didn't understand enterprise value back then. And the fact that I probably could have sold those accounts to another kid, um, but it was good. Yeah. So, so I was an entrepreneur before I was an attorney, you know, like I, I, I had that something about it drew me and in college I ran businesses. I, so I won't get into the detail, but so for me, I did start out at big law firm at a big law firm and then a medium sized law firm, but I always sort of knew I didn't want to work for somebody for the rest of my life. I was clear on that. I was just getting the experience and the contacts. And then I actually made a decision, well, a little less than six years in that, but at six years I left. And my decision was, I knew I wanted to do something on my own, but did I want it to be a law firm or did I want it to be some other type of business? And I took off about three and a half months and skied up at Killington 40 something days after I left uh, you know, the firm I was at and just really thought about it and said, hey, what do, what do I want to do here? And I realized that I liked the practice of law. I just didn't like it working for someone else. And if I figured if I did on my own, that's what my skills and contacts are. And that's what I ended up doing after about six years at uh, other firms. And was it pretty clear from the get-go that you wanted to focus on corporate and business law? Well, what's interesting is when I first graduated law school, I was sure I wanted to be a management side labor law attorney. I don't know why. I took courses that sounded interesting. I, I got a, 
a job. I was very fortunate. I graduated a good law school, NYU in 1985. It was a boom time. The way it works with law firms, that if you go to good schools, is that you get summer office for your second summer. And then if they like you then, then they offer you a permanent job and you actually go into your third year of law school knowing you have a job when you graduate, which is kind of crazy. So I had like 17 job offers. I could have had more. And I picked what was the top management side labor law firm in the country at that time. You know, it was, it was the prime pick. And then as life has it, within a year, between the fact that this was 1985, corporate deals were, were hot. Um, it was the tax year change that came in in 86. The firm I was at brought in a new partner to head the labor department who was a terrible person to work for. So I had a pull to go to the corporate side and, uh, instead of driving me out of the labor side. And, you know, that year I ended up splitting time and then I switched over. So, you know, within a year I, I ended up moving to corporate, but that was not what I thought I was going to be doing. You have a passion for deals. You have a deal-driven mindset. You talk about a deal-driven mindset. What is that? Why is it important? Well, so there's really two fundamental ways that businesses can grow, right? And whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're an executive at a bigger company, you know, you either grow organically or inorganically is one way to divide it, right? The organic way is that it's sales and marketing and providing great products and services. And if you can't do that as a business, you can't be successful, right? You know, unless you're one of the tiny percentage of companies that it's formed just to do acquisitions. But most businesses are operating businesses. You have to get a client or a customer and be able to get another one, another one, and provide great products and services. But there is such a smaller percentage of companies that actually grow the other way, inorganically, which is deal-driven growth. And there's all these misperceptions out there about, you know, oh, I need to be big. I need to have capital. I can only, it's only M&A. And there's strategic alliances and joint ventures and licensing deals and online affiliate deals. And I can go on for the rest of your podcast, just listing the types of deals that companies can do. And the reason I'm passionate about it is because, so I'm very tied in the entrepreneurial community. I was a member of entrepreneurs organization for over a decade. I was president of New York chapter. I, it's like, I love working with growing companies of any size, not just entrepreneurial companies, even big companies, as long as they have a growth mentality, because they're building, right? They're building something. They have a vision. They want to create something new, or they want to build on something that they built. It creates jobs, it creates new products and services, which are hopefully good for the world. So that's just a passion of mine. So one of the ways to help them do that, I'm not a sales, like you could be a sales consultant, right? Or, you know, help people grow organically. That's not my thing. I love the strategy. I love the negotiation. I love figuring out structures. I love figuring out how there can be synergies between different parties. And that's just, you know, sort of my, my gift and my passion. So and I think it's so underutilized by companies who maybe aren't growing as fast as they want, or they get stagnated or, or in ownership succession, right, situations, whether it's, you know, you do a lot of family business stuff, family business comes up with other businesses. What do we do as things evolve and as founders want to roll out? Do we sell internally? Do we sell externally? I love helping people figure that stuff out. And uh, I find just deals in negotiating and growth through that route. It's just exciting. It's, uh, it's something I'm passionate about. You're also passionate about entrepreneurial freedom. I've yeah. seen that phrase in your work also. And, you know, we did talk a little bit about that in terms of what entrepreneurs can do to really create enterprise value. You hinted that earlier with your flyer business. And yeah. so for somebody wondering, they might think, oh, well, it might mean growing top line revenue. And it might, right? Certainly the size of the company matters, or it might mean profitability. Of course, the profitability of your company matters too, but there's other factors that come into play. So let's start with entrepreneurial freedom. What does that mean to you? And then we'll segue into some of the other things that I want to dive in related to enterprise value. Sure. So, I mean, you know, some of the things you mentioned 
could be ways that some of that might be measured or metrics that you're, you know, you're shooting for. But ultimately, what I think it comes down to, and, and it's interesting to me, how many folks go on what they say is the entrepreneurial journey and they don't have freedom, right? They bought themselves a job, they're self-employed, they're really not entrepreneurs. And I don't, I want to be, be really, really clear. I don't say that with any judgment, right? There's a lot of judgment out there in the entrepreneurial world, you know, on, oh, you just have a lifestyle business. You No, no. For me, it's a matter of what you want, like self-awareness, right? If you're very happy being a solo, whatever, whether it's a solo practitioner or as a lawyer or you're a consultant, competing consultant, whatever you are, and you're thrilled and you have a nice business, you make a nice living, it gives you the lifestyle you want, more power to you. If you're happy, you're better off than most people out there. I don't care what size company they have, right? In fact, my thing is everybody should have a lifestyle business. That lifestyle business could be the next Facebook, or it could be working out of your you know, home bedroom with a few clients and making a decent living. The question is what lifestyle you want to create, what's aligned with who you are. But for me, there are so many folks who become what they call entrepreneurs, and then they're not happy with it because, because they bought themselves a job and because there's all the ups and downs and struggles of being an entrepreneurship without that regular paycheck, and they haven't really taken advantage of a lot of the benefits of being an entrepreneur because they don't feel free, right? And so for me, you know, I sort of say, why start your own business unless it's going to provide you with freedom? And now listen, take it with a grain of salt because, you know, I wear this bracelet here. It says freedom on it. It's the only piece of jewelry I wear. It's from myintent.org, a great organization where you get any word put on one of these things. And um, freedom is my highest value in life, period, not just in the entrepreneurial context. I mean, for I'm talking about freedom from everybody in the world, from oppression, you know, to the reason I'm an entrepreneur. So for me, what I value most is, you know, if somebody said you can make 10 times the amount of money you're making now, Corey, right? But you're going to lose, you know, forget 10 times the freedom, you know, you're going to lose half the freedom you have now. I'm a no, Right. Right. What, you know, what I have started my businesses for is to be able to create the life I want. And that means lifestyle. That means, you know, uh, you know, if I want to take a vacation and go somewhere, spend time with my wife. It also means if I have passion projects that I want to work on. It also means how I handle my clients, who I hire, the kind of culture I create. You know, I want the freedom to um, have a vision and fulfill on that vision without there being impediments in my way. And that vision's a holistic vision, not only of what my businesses look like, but what my life look, life looks like in, you know, in relation to those businesses and the opportunities that, that provides. Yeah. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to that. A lot of people who start a company, or if you say maybe they've acquired a company, maybe it's a franchise or they're the next generation that has acquired ownership of their family company. So yes, you can be that role where you are striving for the next thing and it's the freedom to choose whatever that next thing is or it's as you said finding a lifestyle that's important to you so whatever that choice is so freedom is a great word I, i'm glad you showed your bracelet there for anybody watching on video and youtube you'll see corey do that that's really cool when we talk about creating enterprise value sometimes owners think about themselves as the differentiator they are the special sauce they are the ones who have the client relationships. They understand what the needs are, the customer needs. They might be then developing products and services, even delivering the value. And then what's happening? Well, the problems are coming back to them. And it's like, we call this the, the owner's trap. Yep. And a company that cannot survive without its owner or the person at the helm is essentially a worthless company. You've probably seen this. And let's, yep. let's reflect on that. What are the most common pitfalls 
that entrepreneurs face when they're trying to create value, but maybe they're in their own way. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, listen, the person you've described has at best made themselves more valuable as an employee to be hired by somebody, right, <laughs> later. They have not created, I mean, in fact, it's the exact opposite thing that creates enterprise value in entrepreneurial and growing companies, right? It's, it's they become less dependent uh, upon, their, upon their founders and their owners because um, if you can't systemize, if you can't build team, if you can't, you know, I mean, if it's, it's less transferable if it's dependent upon any one person, you know, whether that's you or, or anybody else. So, you know, this conversation of freedom that we just had for me ties very much into that because, and it may seem counterintuitive, right? Because a lot of times people think of freedom as, oh, you know, they're going to take time off. They're going to do this stuff, whatever. Um, and, you know, well, they won't be as effective in building their business, so it won't be worth as much. And there is a balance, obviously. And, and there's also stages, right? I mean, listen, it's, it's a great theory to talk about entrepreneurial freedom when, when, if you're in startup mode, right? And I remember when I first started, you know, I was hustling. I was going to every networking event there was. I was figuring out how to buy, you know, supplies and stables because I had nobody to do that. And I had, you know, so trust me, I know, I understand that, that entrepreneurial freedom is a luxury and it comes at a point after a lot of work. But those conversations are consistent because the more free you, you get up, you, you be, you know, you get to be as, a, as an owner, as a founder, um, the less dependent your company is upon you. And then the more valuable it is. And by the way, it also frees you up. I have this whole other conversation that I have with executives and owners and entrepreneurs about highest and best use. You know, and for me, I think our goal always is to get into doing ideally only our highest and best use areas, which is, has to be something we're great at, but that's not enough. We also have to be passionate about it. We got to love it, right? You talked about how I love, you know, structuring deals and negotiating, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm good at it. I love it. But then there's a third factor when you're the founder, owner, executive leader of a company, it's also got to be highly leveraged. It's got to make a big difference in the business because there can be stuff you're great at and, you're, and you love doing, but it doesn't move that it doesn't matter, right? It's not important. Um, so when you can focus on those three things, first of all, you feel much more freedom because you're doing what you love, you're doing what you're great at, you're doing what's making a difference, it's growing your company. Um, but you have other people who are running it, building it, et cetera. And, hope, and for the most part, I think entrepreneurs find that those areas that they focus on are things that are only going to increase the value of the company even more because they're going to be future focused. They're not going to be putting out fires, dealing with HR issues, dealing with that client issue today. You know, they're going to be forward looking and being able to stay in vision and doing what, if you are a founder, hopefully you're best at. So we talked a lot about the seller side. Now let's switch over to the buyer side. And what generally do you find when you're doing these deals? And you work on both sides, right? Seller and buyer. Yeah. And you're also I'm understanding from your experience that you work with a lot of different size companies, yeah. privately held and, and also I think some publicly traded ones too. But let's say for the purposes of this discussion, let's talk about private companies. Yeah. And so a company that's looking to be sold, you know, it's good to look at their value from the lens of a third party. Yeah. Like how, ultimately the value of your company is going to be determined by whoever is willing to pay for it, right? Ultimately. And they want to get this predictable future flow of profits yeah. and they're looking for reasons to discount yes. your multiple and your value. What are those things that tend to surprise the seller when offers come back and they, maybe the number doesn't match what they had in mind? What are some of those reasons that you see? Well, listen, let's start at a fundamental level, which is that many, many sellers overvalue their business, right? So, you know, that, that's a starting point. And 
I'm going to sort of, you know, give people the tough bad news. The tough bad news is that the market doesn't care how long it took you to build your business, right? Yes, there's some value in longevity in terms of if you built a brand or a reputation, right? I'm not discounting that. But the fact that you slave for 20 years or 30 years, right, uh, you know, uh, the company's going to look at, um, you know, somebody who was, who got there in 10 years, the same place you are, maybe is more valuable because of their growth rate. Right. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that, you know, this is your heart and soul. It doesn't matter. Like all, you know, for many entrepreneurs, it's their baby. Right. right. And because it's their baby, they put so much more value on it. Um, you know, Lori's right. I mean, ultimately it's what somebody will pay. Right. And somebody's going to look at your, you have to remember, they're going to look at your business much more objectively than you are. And they're also going to see some of the problems that you don't see. So, uh, you know, one of the things that come up other than just starting point differences in valuation, um, I mean, there's a lot you want to do to prepare yourself. First of all, we talked about it being less dependent upon you. So uh, if, you, if you've really created a business that's less dependent upon you, then you probably have a core team, right? Executive team, management team, whatever, that are really important. And you, what you want to do is be able to structure a deal where those folks are gonna be interested and happy in coming along because in many deals, it's not always true. Sometimes there are acquirers who have all kinds of infrastructure and executive team or whatever, and they're just buying up your client list or buying your technology or, but in many, many cases, right? Part of the big value that you've created in your company is the management team that you built. So you wanna structure a deal and approach a deal in a way and approach them in a way where they're gonna come along with the deal because if they don't come along with the deal, then it's not as valuable, you know, to, to folks. Um, obviously, having your house in order. I mean, it is, listen, I, I can't tell you how many times we're doing cleanup, right, on companies legally. The, you know, the accountants are coming in and cleaning up the financials. Um, if you are going to sell, ideally, you're going to uh, look at this as a multi-year process, right? You're going to get yourself in shape for sale years in advance, right? which means that you're gonna have somebody come in and look at your financials. You're gonna have like three years of really nice financials, which have been, if not audited, at least reviewed at, you know, at, at a heavy level. We do a lot of pre-due diligence with our clients. Like we know what, what, uh, what buyers are gonna be looking for. So as opposed to going in um, and, uh, and have something blow up, because it, let, let me take a step back. Well, you, know, you mentioned Lori, like the, the buyer is always looking for reasons you know, to discount and frankly, at certain levels, looking for reasons not to do the deal, right? Very often you have a buyer where some level of executive has made the decision, I'm interested in this company, let's do it. But the people who are coming in and actually getting the deal done, the ones who are doing the due diligence, certainly, they're financial people, they're legal people, they're operations people, they're HR people, right? A lot of those people, you gotta understand their mentality, right? Unlike a lot of the founders, some of them, right? I'm not saying all of them, right? But some of them are looking at this and saying, hey, if this deal goes through and I've missed something and something blows up, my job's in trouble, right? So they're very, very cautious and they're very worried. They're very, maybe over-indexed on what could go wrong because they're, some of them are not the kind of people who are looking at the vision on the upside. So you need to pre-prepare for that. And then when you work with good professionals, they're going to know what the buyer is going to be looking for. And we're going to, we put our clients through a pre-due diligence process, right? So that, we basically put them through the due diligence first. So we catch anything that's going to be a problem. We get them really set up well, you know, to do it. Now, listen, sometimes circumstances happen and you don't have the luxury of being years in advance. Markets change, health changes for an owner, whatever it is. 
And, you know, you have to scramble. But the point is you still want to do as much as you can in advance to get the company looking as good as you can because you don't want to be in a position where the buyer comes in and sees some smoke and think and thinks, where is the fire I don't know about, right, even if it doesn't exist. So that's, so that's you know, that's really important. And then, um, you know, the final thing I'll say is that um, you get clarity as a seller on, and this is true seller buy side. You know, I, I always push total clarity on exactly what you want, right, and how you want it. But also with, with, with sellers, I work with them uh, in a very different way to get clarity on what they're going to do next. And by the way, that's okay if it's 250 rounds of golf or it's travel the world or if it's start your new company. But I've seen deals go bad on the seller side where they think they want to sell, right? Logically, they know it makes sense to sell. And then, you know, time goes on a little bit and they go down the deal road and there's something emotionally, something spiritually, something mentally, whatever it is, uh, that just doesn't allow them to do it. And they either sabotage the deal or they, you know, or they're, they're miserable through the process. And, you know, so you really want to f- make sure you want to sell and then figure out what's next for you. Because if you don't have something to live into, sometimes it can backfire. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I can understand that from the vantage point of my clients where they talk about that. This is, you know, their second or third generation or they are the founder, their name's on the door. So I see a range of all of those things. And I find the what's next conversation is really, really important. And I work with clients on this business readiness. How do we get your business ready? And then also the personal readiness. And so glad you you brought that up too. I think we're on definitely on the same page about that. I think you have to let it percolate. You know, it's not a microwave oven process. It's more like a slow cooker. (laughs) That's right. That's right. right. (laughs) So I'm curious about your experience working with technology companies. You mentioned you are very tied in with the entrepreneurial network and tech. When a company is looking to buy a technology, they might be doing it as an aqua hire, right? They really want the talent, not so much the tech. But in other situations, they want the technology. It's filling a strategic gap in their offering. And ultimately, when the seller is hearing across the table, all these wonderful signals might be thinking, this is great, this is great. And then the potential buyer, you know, goes, leaves the boardroom, they go back to their offices. I'm wondering if the conversation is, hey, should we just build what they have? And what have you seen around that when tech is being evaluated and the digital assets from a build versus buy standpoint, what makes a deal go through or not go through? What examples might you have to share? Yeah, it's it's a great question because, uh, you know, the buyers are always making that build versus buy, you know, um, analysis, right? Uh, and uh, and then, you know, on the seller side, especially if it's, you know, a bigger player, right? You know, there's always a concern. Um, so part of it is uh, is just uh, how you create value, and then part of it is just sort of so, sort of how you protect yourself. So let's talk about how you create value. You know, one of the biggest things that that you uh, want to do when you're a new technology company like that who's looking at, for an acquisition, you know, to be or sale to be your your exit, um, is uh, the your ability to get as much. Um, well, first of all, obviously, quality of the product helps. But the truth is, if you're dealing with, you know, a buyer who's bigger, usually they could, you know, especially if, they, if they've seen what you've done, right, they could figure out a way to, you know, to, to build it, right? I mean, you know, there are exceptions, but for the most part, trust me, they could pay developers who are as smart or smarter than the people that, you, you know, that, that build, they'll build your product. Um, but, you know, but, but obviously the better it is, the more advantage it is, it does change the uh, sort of buy versus 
you know, build analysis a little bit. Um, but the bigger thing is, you know, sort of speed to market and access and customers and adoption. And it's why in the online world, and people don't understand this, you sort of get crazy about the valuations that are paid for companies that are pre-revenue, you know, but they have uh, a lot of, you know, um, users, right? I mean, a great example, right, you know, that, that you know, that um, we've seen over, you know, the last uh, number of, of months and, and no matter how, when this airs, it's going to be true for a while is, you know, Clubhouse, right? Clubhouse is in beta still at this moment while we're recording, but even when, if it comes out of beta, when I mean, they have millions of millions, you know, they're getting the attention, they're getting the eyeballs, they're getting whatever, right? They haven't figured out how to monetize it yet. They may have plans, et cetera, right? Clubhouse is worth a ridiculous amount of money now, right? They haven't earned a dollar, I don't believe, because I don't see how they monetize it. I'm just using that as an example. We've seen it with other social media sites, other technologies, wherever. Why? Because attention, because clients, right, customers, that, that you can can monetize in the future, either directly through that platform or that you could then cross sell, upsell or whatever, where you get their information for other products and services, super valuable. So, you know, that's the that's the biggest single thing that you can, you know, you can do. And some tech founders sort of, you know, forget that because they get enamored by their, you know, cool technology and how innovative they are. And, you know, the truth is, um, you know, it's most most of the times it's easy. You know, you can knock that off. Now, in terms of protections, there's always this chicken and egg conversation, right? You know, some people like never get a deal done because they're so afraid that somebody's going to steal, you know, their technology that they'll never sit at the table. And on you know, and on the flip side, some people go and totally unprotected. And the problem, you know, the challenge is that a lot, especially big companies, and if you're really small and they're big companies they're often not going to sign, you know, you can do an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, but big companies are often not going to sign that line because they got a hundred or a thousand things going on in research and development and they don't want to be held back. Um, so, you know, there's got to be a way that you are guided to, you know, share certain things at some point. And then if they express an interest, then you can get, you know, an, an NDA in place to try to get some protections. But I will tell you up front that, you know, there's always some level of risk. If you're looking to do a deal, especially with bigger companies, there's always some level of risk that they are gonna go down this road and then decide to build instead. Um, so you gotta understand that, that's part of the game. It is part of the game for sure. Let's talk about trusted advisors. If there's an entrepreneur or founder, you know, someone who's owning a company thinking about potential sale, at what point should they enlist the support of, you know, let's say if it's somebody like myself, hopefully I'm already working with them, right? We're, we're working on the value of their company. But at what point, it's probably too late if they've already got an LOI in hand and then and are looking to react to it, right? But talk about this, this phase of readiness where they're feeling really ready and they want to bring it to market or perhaps an offer has come their way unsolicited. Yeah, yeah I mean, so listen, I, I feel very fortunate because, I mean, there's exceptions, obviously. Sometimes I get referred in the deals at a later stage and, you know, I, I was just referred. But with my clients that I, that I work with, you know, regularly over the years, they bring me in very early because, um, and there's a hesitancy, frankly, especially with lawyers to bring them in early because lawyers have a reputation, which by the way, most lawyers will deny. I, I think it's actually valid for some, for some portion of the profession. I'll be honest with you, you know, as, as deal killers, now every lawyer says they're a deal maker because, you know, they have to say that because uh, to try to combat that. But the truth is, listen, I, and I, I'll go and I'll, I'll come back to your question, but I always, I have many rant. You know, the problem, the problem with my profession is that we go to law school and we are over-indexed on risk. Risk, evaluating risk, understanding risk, you know, trying to mitigate risk, making clients aware of risk is a super important part of what we do. But the thing with lawyers is that you don't read cases on the, all the deals that went well 
because there are no cases on deals that went well. The only thing you learn in law school is everything that went wrong, right? So it's easy to be over-indexed on, you know, on the risk side. You need to balance the risk side, which is important to, you know, like I said, versus the opportunity side. And, and that's what great business leaders and entrepreneurs do, right? You can't be successful in business without taking risks. You just want to make it be knowing risk, you know, that you mitigate the best you can, that you're aware of, et cetera. So any case, the point is that it, the reason it relates back to your question is that some folks are hesitant to bring in certain professionals like lawyers too early because they feel like they're going to mess up the deal, right? But the problem is even when you've gone to an LOI, some people say, hey, well, LOI is non-binding. Why do I need a lawyer? Well, first of all, and this is the minor point, most LOIs actually have at least a couple of sections that are binding, right? It could be exclusivities. It could be non-chops. It could be, you know, confidentiality. It could, you know, there's, there's something. But second of all, most importantly, it's very hard to go back later in a deal even though the LOI is non-binding, right? And say, I want to change this major part of what we agreed on the LOI because the other, uh, you know, your counterpart on the other side of the table feels like you're retrading the deal, right? And can they, you know, can they trust you? Like, do they really want to do business with you? That's, that was a fundamental deal point. So um, we get involved early because we want to anticipate some of those things that affect, may affect the LOI. We want to even, you know, a lot of clients call us even just to say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this deal. Should I do it? What do you think, you know, on business? Um, so ideally, you have the kind of relationship with counsel and with your financial people, especially, and with any kind of business, co- I mean, a coach, consultant, you know, whatever. I mean, those folks should be with you all the time. Hopefully those folks are sort of your brain trust and your trusted circle and you're going to bring them in, you know, early on. Now, listen, if, if you're just, you know, bringing somebody in as a hired gun, you know, to do a specific thing on the deal, sure, you know, bring them in later. But um, I think legal, financial and consulting, um, you know, are crucial to bring in early. And then obviously if you're of the size company or it's appropriate, where you're going to bring in an investment banker, you know, or business broker, uh, into the process, then, you know, they're also going to be in early because they're going to help shop the deal. I think that's a good list. I would also add wealth management because once you, yes. once the deal closes, you really need a plan for <laughs> where the funds 100%. are going. <laughs> 100%. And we represent, we, I mean, that's a big sector for us, financial service. We represent hundreds of investment advisory, independent investment advisory firms. It's a, it's a big niche for us. And um, yeah, so great, great that, that you added that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that you would want to share today that I didn't ask you about? I, I think the only thing I would say is that, you know, we started to get into it uh, sort of early in the interview. And, I, you know, one of the things I was talking about is sort of the mindset, right, of a, you know, of a deal maker, what makes somebody a deal maker. And, um, you know, and, and some people sort of look at deal maker as this kind of thing where, you know, this wheeler dealer, you know, that's, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, the question is, um, you know, are you the kind of person that, first of all, can um, uh, can create a so? If you're running a company, you're selling a product and service to customers, right? You have a value proposition for that. You have a vision for that. You look out. You're going to grow on that side. You know how you're going to um, create marketing, you know, materials that align with that value proposition. Hopefully, so customers and, and clients can see. It's the same body of work to do deals, right? Right. Why should somebody want to do a deal with you? Why should they, you know, uh, let you acquire them or do a joint venture with them or strategic alliance? So there's a certain sort of, you know, uh, uh, approach, a certain mentality, a certain way of thinking where you apply some similar things to what you do on the client. You know, what is your value proposition 
to that company that you want to acquire. Why should they join you, right? Why should they want to do a joint distribution deal with you, a marketing deal with you, or you know whatever it is? Um, and then how you how do you create the value proposition? How do you communicate that to them? Uh, and also, how do you build a team and resources to be able to focus on that? Because your operations team is not going to be able to do that and still run and grow the business. So, you know, I just want to bring in sort of that, uh, that mentality. And that is something like entrepreneurship, like other things that some people are much more natural at and they have an advantage. But it is also, you know, a learned skill for those folks who are willing to do it and take the risk. And, you know, may, they may not be as natural at it. Uh, and I think that's an important piece of, uh, of the puzzle is to start. And it's frankly the reason why I started the DealQuest podcast. You know, it's not like I don't monetize that. I don't have advertising. I just want, to, I just want people to be able to listen in and, and hear from all these different deal makers and people who have done deals and whatever and, and, and start to get that uh, mentality shift and start to open up their mind to the possibilities uh, so that they can you know, potentially look at that. And it may not be right for everybody, but at least it becomes a, something on the menu. Yeah, and I can definitely say that the DealQuest podcast, I think is great, not only because I've been on it as a guest, you have, you have great guests, but also you do solo casts, which I think is, is where you get a little deeper on a specific topic. So if people want to find you online, Corey, what's the best way to find you? Yeah, so uh, my, my sort of hub website is coreykupfer.com, C-O-R-E-Y-K-U-P. F-E-R.com. They can get to the law firm site, you know, through that cup for law. Uh, um, and, uh, and then all of my social media is at Corey Cuffer, LinkedIn and Facebook and Clubhouse now and all that stuff. So, but CoreyCuffer.com is the hub. It's got everything I'm doing in terms of my speaking and training and workshops and also, you know, links, links to the law firm stuff. It's got my books, got the podcast. So that's the best place to go. You're probably the most entrepreneurial lawyer I know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So last question for you. Do you have a favorite quote about entrepreneurship that you can share? The thing I think about is it's, it may not be directly on entrepreneurship, but it's totally related to me and it's used in the context. I love the quote about uh, that. It's about jumping off the cliff and making your wings on the way down. Um, because for me, that's, that is my approach to life, but it's also, you know, and definitely entrepreneurship. I mean, you know, I, uh, you know, I started my firm with no clients, with no with in debt, you know, with nowhere, you know, um, and uh, I just had, I think those of us who are really, uh, you know, true entrepreneurs, and I don't, again, I don't mean that in a judgment way. There are situational entrepreneurs who become very successful, right? And they're situational entrepreneurs because they get laid off and they have a few clients, whatever. But for those of us who, you know, are uh, excited about creating something out of no nothing, that's part of what you have to do. I mean, you, you can only see so far ahead and if you wait for everything to be perfect, it's never gonna be the case. So you gotta jump off that cliff and make your wings on the way down. I love it, it's a great quote. Corey, thank you so much for joining me today on Succession Stories. It was awesome to talk to you. Laura, it was a pleasure to be with you. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you wanna understand the value of your company today, the potential net proceeds of a transaction, and your financial needs after you leave the business, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand these numbers, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Take the next step by requesting an initial meeting to begin planning for your business transition and strategic exit today. Request a call with me by visiting smalldotbig.com. That's smalldotbig.com. I look forward to speaking with you.